Dr. Jeremy Sharp is a licensed psychologist, and you may recognize his voice because we've been on his podcast, The Testing Psychologist, a few times. We're excited to welcome him here onto our podcast today to chat more in depth about testing, particularly parent fears around testing. Before I dig in and tell you more about the episode, we wanted to remind you that Learn Smarter Pro is coming back. Learn Smarter Pro is our eight-week program for professionals where there will be professional and individualized support, behind-the-scenes business trainings, group coaching, and more. We will be doing trainings in that group that will never be offered on the podcast. So if you are interested, we are currently sending out applications to those on our wait list. And to get on our wait list, you can go to www.learnsmarterpodcast.com and click Learn Smarter Pro. The group will be kept small by design. So if you're interested, reach out to us now and we'll send you details and the application. We will only be accepting applications for a few weeks, so if you're interested, make sure to get on it. Today, we chat with Jeremy about the parent experience of testing and assessment, evaluations, prescribing, and why labeling isn't such a bad thing. On Patreon, we further the conversation and chat about what assessors would like from us, and we also dig into why some parents follow recommendations and some don't. To listen to that extended conversation with Jeremy, go join us for a monthly donation of $5 a month to hear that conversation. And you'll also get access to all the other things that we only share on Patreon. That's a small way that you guys can contribute to the work that we are doing here on the podcast. And it means so much to us. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer you have to learn smarter the educational therapy podcast hi smarties welcome to episode 133 of learn smarter the educational therapy podcast i'm stephanie pitts and i'm rachel cap and today we are super excited to have dr jeremy sharp who is a licensed psychologist joining us hi do you want us to call you Jeremy or Dr. Sharp? Uh, yeah, just call me Jeremy. I think that's more comfortable for everybody. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> the other thing Steph didn't share yet is that you actually have your own podcast called The Testing Psychologist. And so this isn't the first time the three of us have chatted, so I feel fairly comfortable. So when Steph was like, do you want to be Dr. Sharp? I was like, we've never called him that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> <if> I- <laughs> <laughs> So we've chatted on your podcast twice. Thank you so much for letting us share those interviews on our podcast feed as well. They're popular. They are popular. I think people like us being interviewed because they're so used to us asking the questions. But after we recorded our last episode with you, we were like, we got to get you to come on. We just started talking about all the things that psychologists and ed therapists talk about when other people aren't in the room. Mm -hmm. And we're like, this is the episode. So... Before we dig into that, tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and what you do and who you do it for. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm so excited to be talking with y'all to be on the other side here where I can just answer questions, you know? (laughs) So yeah, I'm a licensed psychologist and I have been in private practice in Colorado since 2009. And I started with a pretty generalist practice with therapy and assessment, but actually pretty early, I transitioned to only doing testing. So these days, I only do assessment with kids. 
you know, questions like, does my kid have ADHD or does my kid have autism or is this a learning disorder? Or sometimes it's just very simply what is going on with my kid. Then we dig in and do a bunch of assessment and pull all the data together and try to give parents some answers as to what is going on with their kid and what to do about it. You guys give us a roadmap to start. Talk to us a little bit about the decision to podcast and sort of what your thinking was with that. Sure. So this was probably 2016. And, you know, at that point, I'd been in practice for several years and was pretty busy. Just personality wise, I kind of felt like I sort of figured this out. Let me do something different. I knew that I wanted to teach in some way. I enjoyed teaching in the past. And I was working with a business coach and he said, why don't you start a podcast? There's no podcast about testing specifically for other clinicians. And I said, that sounds like a great idea. (laughs) So yeah, it's a way to uh, share knowledge, I suppose, and do a little bit of teaching uh, of sorts. And yeah, it's been super fun. I'm coming up on four years in January. How many episodes have you done? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. Let me see. I think I just finalized number 163 this morning. So Amazing. Okay, so we're a little behind you. Okay, so now this is my favorite question for podcasters, and it's because it took us so long. The answer is for us really long. How long from idea to launch? Uh, I'm going to have to think back. Maybe two or three months. Oh, that's fast. <laughs> we okay, took us two or three months to name the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> See, I had help though. Like I said, I had a coach, so he was keeping me accountable. And he's like, okay, now uh, you're doing this. Next week, you're getting your mic. Next week, you're setting up WordPress, you know, all that uh, stuff. So. We needed that because Steph and I met weekly for nine months, Steph? Nine months, yeah. It's crazy, Yeah. <laughs> And we did hire a consultant at one point to kind of just move us forward. And it was like a one-time thing, but I do think a coach would have moved this process along faster for a couple of different projects that Steph and I'm going when it's just the two of us. It's like, (laughs) do you feel like this, Jay? Nah, okay. (laughs) Next. So I love hearing sort of the backstory. So if our audience wants to go and listen to the testing psychologist, and we'll link it in the show notes, but can you tell us a little bit about sort of the nuts and bolts, the mission of it, your elevator speech of it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's a podcast that really aims to tackle the business and practice of psychological and neuropsychological assessment. It's really, I think, aimed at clinicians more than anything else, um, at other psychologists or folks who are doing testing. But I do one business episode and one clinical episode each week. So if there are folks out there who are interested in that, the testingpsychologist.com is the place to find it. Perfect. Nice. Well, you compiled a list of ideas of things that we have talked about over the time that we've known each other, but you've been listening to our podcast and you wanted to come on and clarify something about insurance, which launched a whole conversation before we hit record, but yeah. Hot topic. Yeah. Hot topic. Tell us a little bit about assessment and insurance and sort of what you wanted to correct. Yeah, for sure. So background, I got to say, I mean, I listen to y'all's podcast a lot. I love it. I think y'all are fantastic, obviously. But I was listening to one episode. (laughs) I forget which one it was. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, what? Because y'all said insurance doesn't cover testing. And it was just a little kind of throwaway comment. And so I wanted to chat about that a little bit just to say that insurance does cover testing quite often. And 
I think like y'all were saying, you know, it depends geographically which practices or individuals might take insurance and then what kind of quality of evaluation comes from those practitioners. But I can say at least in Colorado, you know, we're very fortunate that our insurance panels will reimburse quite a few hours for testing, which allows us to do, you know, pretty comprehensive evals that I think are pretty high quality, right? I mean, I'm biased, of course. Cognitive Mm -hmm. and achievement? Yeah. So it depends on the panel. And there's also a little bit of, um, I'd say, philosophical difference in terms of how achievement testing falls into this whole Mm -hmm. uh, realm of assessment. So there are some folks out there that would certainly make the argument that achievement tests are actually reflections of neuropsychological processes and we can Mm -hmm. administer those achievement tests as long as the primary diagnosis on the insurance claim is not a learning disorder. Did that all make sense at all? To me, it does. But I think to the audience, probably not. And that's okay. I'm processing that. Can you say it again, maybe in a different way so our audience can, and I can catch yes. up? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So so typically, what you will find almost universally across insurance panels is that they will not cover any testing where a learning disorder is the primary diagnosis. Right. So if a parent comes in and is like, I think my kid has dyslexia, but I want to do that testing. There's nothing else going on, like nothing else, no ADHD suspicion, no anxiety, no depression, no anything else, no head injury, then that's going to be hard to get covered under insurance because all we have is that learning disorder diagnosis to bill it under, right? Hmm. But if a parent comes in and says, I think my kid has a learning disorder and they also have trouble paying attention and we got divorced last year and so on and so forth, where we might have some other primary diagnosis to work with, then the likelihood that insurance will cover it is much higher. That's so interesting. So it will depend on location. It depends on your insurance. I just know that in my experience, only a small amount is covered. And then a lot of it is out of pocket anyway. And so I don't want to give everybody the hope that, oh, I can make this happen when you might not be able to. I think what we've really come down to is like know your geographic area and know the culture of the area that you are in. Because like one of the things that I was saying is like, yes, I know assessors who do cover insurance and they happen to do a fantastic job. Yeah, me too. And I know assessors who don't take insurance and I really don't want parents going to them. It's like anything else. Not everything's a perfect fit for everybody. Mm -mm. So here's my question to you. Because I've had families who have said it is so expensive in LA, which it is. What do you think about us going and doing this testing out of state? We have family in this state. My mom lives in this state. They know this person. They're the head of this program. What do you think? And I always feel a little apprehensive about it because they don't know the local school system here. They don't know the independent schools that a lot of our clients come from. But at the same time, I think what was going on with this case was, to me, pretty transparent, this one that I'm thinking of. So what do you think? How do you weigh into that conversation? Yeah, yeah. I think what you said makes a lot of sense. For me, the big question mark would be school district and how to integrate the results with the schools. So, I mean, if that family, for example, is working with 
folks like y'all, you know, who know the school district well and could help them navigate that process, then yeah, I think it's totally fine to go out of state and get, you know, that quality evaluation at maybe a little lower cost than the LA area. But then they'd have to have someone to kind of help them plug into referrals once they got back home, right? So could be schools, could be psychiatrists, could be therapists, you know, that's the piece that makes a huge difference, right? Just some of the independent schools that my practice works with quite a bit. They're very particular about who is doing the assessment. And to the extent that I've seen schools throw out the first testing and they're like, we want this person, which is such a financial investment for families on top of everything else. So just be really, really informed in making that decision. Just like in everything else, it matters who you hire. Exactly. Yeah. Ask around. But I'm glad we clarified this because it is possible to get it paid for. What we are talking about is always the quality. Right. And so you got to know the people because some people are really high quality and some have a different approach, shall we say. Well said. Thank you. I'm trying to be (laughs) politically correct. So let's dig into sort of this list that you put together, Jeremy. And we'll kind of throw it over to you and let you kind of talk us through it. And then we can have a conversation about it. But yeah, go for it. Yeah, I was just thinking about as we were prepping for the episode, you know, what are some things that I kind of wish parents knew or could highlight a little bit more? So this started as a top five things and I ended up with eight. I'm not sure how that happened. but So now it's a a top eight things. Uh, So we'll see how this goes. But yeah, I mean, the first thing that I wanted to throw out there addresses what my colleague, Dr. Stephanie Nelson, would say is a secret question during evaluations. So, you know, parents come in and have what she calls secret questions, like ones they won't ask, but you kind of know are underneath the surface. And number one on my list is it's not parents' fault. So I think a lot of the time parents come into these evaluations and they are secretly worried that we're going to say, you've totally messed up your kid. Now let's figure out how to undo that. You know, you're a bad parent. Um, What were you thinking? That sort of thing. I think we all as parents have that underlying, I don't know if you call it shame, but something in that ballpark of our parenting skills, right? Yeah. And I think by the time they get to the assessment phase, I think shame is exactly the right sort of word to identify what their experience of academic sort of, or however it's presenting, whether their kids behavioral or academic challenges, but it's not been smooth sailing. And parents, I do think internalize it a lot. And I know that when we're having conversations with parents, staff, they will sometimes be like, this is me. Mm-hmm. I see myself in the kid. But then it's interesting sort of how they framework it, how they sort of rationalize it because some parents will have the perspective of this is me, but I overcame it. Yes. I hear that all the time. Or they'll say, this is me and I'm still struggling with this. Mm -hmm. The compassion level that they have with their kid kind of depends on which avenue they go down. Don't you think? Yeah. And it also depends on which parent we're really mostly in communication with, because a lot of times I also hear my husband said this, or my wife said this was just exactly like them. And one of the things that I try to reframe is that, you know, education was very different back then, right? Even for us, education is different now than it was when we were kids. And so it's not a matter of you overcame it and 
so your kid will or won't because of that, but it's just different. And so having a team and being armed with all the knowledge is going to make a huge difference. And, you know, like we always say, your kid already knows. And so if your kid can really understand and have language about what's going on and be able to advocate for themselves, they're going to have a much easier time. So that's why this is so important to look at it with the eye of it's nothing that's wrong. It's just your eyes are brown, your eyes are blue, your eyes are hazel. Like it's just a fact, whether you wear glasses or you wear contacts or you don't need anything at all. I mean, there's just so many variations that if we just look at it as a fact and try not to put the shame and the feelings around it, then we arm the kids. They have a little bit more armor, I think. Steph, who was it that said to us, and I think it was somebody we were interviewing or maybe we were being interviewed, but in sort of the shift in education, we're also preparing kids now for jobs that don't exist yet, which is different from earlier generations. And who said that to us? I don't remember. Okay. Our audience is sitting there because they know our content better than we do. And they're sitting there screaming in their cars like, this is who said it. But somebody said that to us and it was like transformative in sort of how we can help parents understand and conceive of, yes, the parents, especially who experience whatever challenge their child is now experiencing and are successful, they ended up with their strengths and their affinities going in the direction that best suited them, and which is the perfect sort of model to see for these kids. It's like they're successful in spite, whether they have brown hair or blonde hair, right? Exactly. There's just so much to unpack there, I think. But like y'all said, parent feelings cut both ways, right? There are some who say, you know, we don't need to address this because I got through it and it's fine and they minimize and others who are super empathic and, you know, that serves them as well. But I always try to highlight, you know, we'll talk about sort of the strengths-based approach for kids, but I think there's a strengths-based approach for parents too, which is, you know, no matter what perspective they come from, it's going to be helpful. Like the parent who got through it is going to have some strategies that they probably use to get through it that they can impart. And then the ones who are super empathic and we want to address this, that obviously has its benefits as well. Yeah. Parents don't have to beat themselves up no matter what. No, please don't, you guys. That's number one. Yeah. All right. What's the second thing? Yeah. So the second thing that I wanted to touch on And these are not necessarily in order of importance or anything like that. But the second thing is just making sure that people know what a comprehensive and thorough process and evaluation can be. We get parents who are shocked and surprised when we tell them that we're going to be spending, you know, 15 to 20 hours with their kid. And this is going to take, you know, a few different appointments and might take a month or so, you know, to get from start to finish. So this is in direct contrast to maybe the medical model where they might walk in to an appointment and walk out 15 minutes later with a prescription for something, right? Mm -hmm. So I just say that to maybe set people at ease that yes, it's super thorough and comprehensive, but that is by design. And we think that it results in a lot more helpful information than if we had only spent an hour with your kiddo. Yeah. So many things present the same. And it's very important for you guys to suss out which is which. Like ADHD and anxiety can look very similar, as we know. But you have to be able to figure out which one's which, right? Because they're very different in how we're approaching and all of that. So 
the more thorough, the better. So important that we tell the parents that, yeah, you really do want something thorough. You don't want an hour. That's what I appreciate too about your guys's process because it's not a snapshot. Right. And this used to frustrate me. I won't say which old job, but I had a boss who would walk in the room when something was going on with the kid and she saw him one time and would make a determination, but go and tell the families. And it was such a snapshot that it always was problematic because sometimes she would walk in the room when there wasn't anything to see. And sometimes she would walk in when an outlier of whatever the normal was. It always has sort of stuck with me, even in the work that we do, we're very thoughtful in our practices about how we give feedback, when we give feedback, when we communicate with the school, because we want it to be constructive and give the student, the learner, the best possible chance for us to see sort of all the things. Right. I had an example the other day, and like you, I will not name names, of course, but a parent came to my office and said that uh, they'd recently seen a psychiatric provider in the area and had gotten a diagnosis of autism. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, that's good information. Thanks for letting me know. What did that process look like? And through a conversation came to find out that the parent talked with the psychiatrist over Zoom and that person never met the kid or saw the kid and gave a diagnosis of autism there in that sort of brief conversation with the parent. So I just say that to contrast the evaluation process. And that's why we do what we do because yeah, there's a lot. We're trying to give the kid the best chance right. here across the board. Right. So let's transition to the third thing, which I'm excited to talk to you about. <laughs> sure. Because people ask us this also. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we get so many questions. And I mean... God bless the public for not knowing what we all do because our titles are so nondescriptive. And so let me dig into that. People will know what I'm talking about when we say this. So the third thing on the list is um, psychologists do not prescribe medication for the most part. Now, there are a few states where psychologists have prescription privileges. It's very rare. So let's just ignore those for the sake of this conversation. It's hard because, you know, we as psychologists, we are mental health practitioners, clinicians. We went to graduate school, right? We have PhDs and we primarily do psych testing and neuropsych testing. Psychiatrists, which sounds very similar, are the ones who went to medical school. They have MDs and they are prescribers. They prescribe the medication, but they don't do testing like we do. So we get a lot of calls like that. Can you prescribe medication either before or after the evaluation? And I always have to talk with folks about how, no, our fields, it's fragmented. We all kind of live in our silos and do the one thing that we're good at. I'm sorry that you have to go see somebody else, but that's how it is. Yeah. I mean, we can't all be all the things. Right. I was talking to one of my cousins. They're trying to figure out their next step. They've graduated. And my husband said to him too, he's like, everybody starts out by getting somebody else coffee. So just start getting somebody else coffee. And I said, whatever sort of path you pick, just specialize. The more specialized you become, the better you're going to become in your little thing in the world that you do. And that's how people are going to find you. And that's where, frankly, you get paid better too, is when you're really good at one thing. Yeah. I think it's good that we don't do all the things because I don't think we could be as good at all the things. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, those states that give psychologists prescription privileges, there's a, a lot of debate about whether it's quote unquote worth it to go down that path. And 
I don't know. I'm very torn. It seems like a lot of liability and I couldn't imagine, you know, taking a one or two year graduate program and learning how to prescribe medication. It seems very nuanced. If you really wanted to prescribe, you would have gone to school. It's the reason that Steph and I, as educational therapists, we are allowed to do assessments and we choose not to because you guys went to school for years to be able to do this. And we had like three classes sure. on it, maybe. And so it's just not our zone, not where we feel most comfortable and most responsible. Right. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. I'm a specialization snob as well, or a, a scope of expertise snob, maybe. As the, so what's your zone? Well, my zone is pediatric assessment. That's my zone. Yeah. But, it, oh, I thought you were going to be more specific, like girls with, you know, autism, or I thought you were going to... But how would they know that until they've done the assessment? No, they wouldn't, but we know that there are some people that, like, if it's a question... Not saying you don't do any of the other things, but if it's hard to suss out, like you go to Dr. Jeremy Sharp, you know? Yeah, that's a better way to put it. Like complex differential diagnosis, you know, within assessment yes. is probably yes. yes, yes. I like that better. We just niched you down a little bit. Thanks, y'all. I'm going to go update my website right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number four, we love. We did episodes on this. We can link them if we remember what the episodes are titled. No magic pill. No magic pill in the show notes. But Jeremy, tell us number four, because parents need to hear that sometimes you're not the last step on the journey. Well, yeah, exactly. So the way I phrased it was it won't be an overnight fix by any means. So we try to front load this as much as possible that like, yes, this evaluation is going to be super comprehensive and will give you a great idea of where to go afterward, but it's not going to solve your problems just by virtue of finishing the assessment. So I will often tell parents that we kind of turn into social workers or case managers at the end of the eval, honestly, because what we're doing is connecting parents to resources. You know, we're connecting them to this educational therapist or that occupational therapist or this counselor or that psychiatrist or whatever. So there are still, you know, a few paths to, to pursue after the evaluation. And that's where the real work happens. We can equate it to when you get your learner's permit when you're driving. Right? You take the test, but those are just the rules. Steph is the queen of the metaphor. I love it. But like, how do you learn, right? Yeah, they can throw all the things, okay, when this happens, you need to do this. and But until you're in it and know how to react, that is the real work. You know, learning how to, so you can get your driver's license. To me, that's how I would explain it to a parent. Yep. I think that makes a lot of sense. They have to actually get in and try these interventions to see. And then... You're going to have to adjust, but yeah, completely stretch this metaphor to the breaking point is that we give you the roads that you could possibly drive on, right? So we give you all these different directions that you could go and, you know, you may have to take a couple of them, but mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, moving us along. I love number five uh -huh. because well, dig into it and then I'll tell you why I like it so much. When you wrote it, I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So number five for me was. Tread carefully with your schools. And then I put in parentheses that will help with that. I think that y'all help with that a lot more than we probably do. But, you know, this is something I learned really early on is that it doesn't work super well to tell the schools how to do their jobs. So 
in our evaluations, we make recommendations based on what we think would be helpful, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the school has to do anything or is obligated to do anything or to even pay attention to our evaluations. So, you know, we get people who come in and they see the evaluation as sort of a golden ticket to an IEP, which they think they need, but maybe they don't when things can get accomplished with a 504, you know, like people have all sorts of hopes for the evaluation. And I just, I just like to make sure that people know it's not necessarily that golden ticket though. If you're working with a practitioner who has a good relationship with your school district, going back to our out of state question, that practitioner should be able to kind of word things and present things in the eval that make it a lot more likely that the schools will pay attention to it. Why I like this so much is because oftentimes we already have relationships with schools and school districts. And so there's already a foundation of trust between us. And so we can help sort of facilitate it. And you, what's the expression? You get a lot more flies with honey than vinegar. Yeah. Thank you. And so at the end of the day, everybody is a person. Everybody wants to feel like they're doing their job well. And everybody just doesn't want to be undermined. And so approaching people with that openness of spirit and that openness of collaboration can really, really, really go a long way because everybody is just a person wanting to feel good about their day and about the work that they do. We always talk about partnering with the school. So whatever that looks like, partnering with your teacher, partnering with the administration, partnering with, you know, any of the team members or special education teachers or whomever it is, the more that we can partner, the better. So that's why when you said tread carefully, you know, build a relationship. And if you're struggling and need it, the school will help. Sure. Well, and I love that you brought up the idea of partnering because one thing that I think sets our practice apart is that we are building relationships with the school staff before they even get that eval report, you know, like we're going in and doing school observations. We are talking with teachers. We're talking with counselors who've worked with these kids for years, right? When we're just stepping in for a month. And so just, you know, for any parents or folks who might be listening, you know, look for practitioners who already have relationships with the school and are going to involve those uh, staff members in the evaluation process um, so that it's not just this sort of like cold delivery of, you know, mandates for them at the end of the eval. Agreed. All right. So let's talk about number six. Yeah. So to me, six, seven, and eight kind of all go together and we can weave them together somehow with podcast magic. But (laughs) (laughs) so let's start with number six. So number six for me was your kids still the same awesome little person or big person that they were with or without a diagnosis. Preach, preach. Yes. So this goes along with, I mean, number eight is we're looking for strengths and not just weaknesses. And then we'll talk about seven, you know, the the issue of labeling. But I think, you know, this is just under the umbrella of taking a strengths-based approach. Like nothing has changed with your kid after the evaluation, right? Like it's not like they woke up the morning of our feedback session and their brain rearranged and all of a sudden you know, they, they're a different person with autism or something that, Mm -hmm. um, even though they have that, uh, you know, quote unquote label, that's just the way that we use to kind of organize what their brain might be doing and give you a way to understand them a little bit better. And then that sort of unlocks all this literature and, you know, other resources that can help you maybe get to know them uh, a little bit better. 
especially when you have where there is, you know, something very specific that might be going on in your home that's a battle, right? Everything might be amazing. And then there's this one thing, like, let's use homework as an example. Homework is a battle. And if there wasn't any homework, it'd be great. Fact of the matter is, there's going to be some sort of homework most times. So figuring out a diagnosis to help with that one area doesn't mean that your kid is all of a sudden having problems everywhere, right? It's so targeted that I think it's really important to understand. And we've talked about this, Rach, how often when a kid really starts to understand what's going on in their brain, do you see their shoulders just like relax? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I can handle this. And this is why for your number seven of labeling your kid isn't such a bad thing really resonated with me because I firmly believe that we should not keep diagnoses from children that are age appropriate and developmentally appropriate to be able to handle it. Yep. And when that is kept from a child, I feel like that just grows shame that something's wrong with me. I have some kids that come in and yeah, I have ADHD and this is what I can do because I have ADHD. That is what I would love for all of those kids to be able to come in and just have that energy of, wow, you're so creative and your brain thinks of things that are so cool. My brain would never do that. Mm -hmm. And if we could help them just have the language and understand it and be proud, I think it could change so much for so many kids. And that's why I think when we talk about this labeling, so many parents have come to me, well, I don't want my kid to be labeled and that's just a sentence for the rest of their life. And it doesn't have to be. So can you talk a little bit more about your experience with the labeling? Yeah, yeah, of course. And you do, I mean, you said so many important things just then to highlight all of those things, all of those things. But yeah, with labeling, parents are scared of that. You know, parents come in, they're like, this is going to be on my kid's permanent record or school's going to see this, or can they get a job down the road and all sorts of fears around what's going to happen with, you know, with this quote unquote label. And I mean, that came from, there was a book called don't label my child. Right. I mean, there was a movement around sort of a non-diagnostic approach, but first of all, I've never heard of any stories and I've been doing, a, you know, going on 12 years now, I haven't had any parents come back and say that diagnosis you gave us when, you know, Susan was eight has kept her from getting the job that she wanted. And, you know, now that she's 20 or whatever, mm-hmm. I haven't heard any of those stories in real life. So that's one thing. But the other thing is just the idea of labeling in general. Like it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I said, a label, quote unquote, or a diagnosis just gives you like another way to frame your kid's behavior and know where to look for solutions and practitioners who might be able to help you and understand what their brain is up to. So that's just what we call it. That's what I tell parents. Like this is just like a word that we came up with to describe this set of behaviors and emotions and brain activity. It's loaded because of our culture, but it's just a word. It's just a way to organize this information. It is loaded. If it was a physical medical diagnosis, Mm -hmm. there's no problem with that, right? You have a broken arm. You're nearsighted. I use that a lot. You know, whatever it is. Yeah, those things are just... It is what it is. So I think that there's the nuance of the brain and 
you know, does that mean how smart my kid could be? Can my kid go to college? You know, all of these things. And I think that the work that you guys do in helping ease parents' fears as well as what we do, I think is a really good combination to try to help parents not shy away from that stuff for sure. Yeah. A theme that maybe is running through our conversation is just like parent fears. You know, (laughs) our parents' fears are so strong and rarely get acknowledged through this process, I think. Fair enough. So just to hopefully allay some of those fears that it's probably not as bad as you think it might be or it's going to turn out to be. Our imagination tends to be much worse than reality. Absolutely. It's true. And so let's talk about number eight for a second, the strengths. Yeah. You're looking at how the brain works specifically, not what it doesn't do, but you're also looking at what does it do? And so, yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, I love this. I mean, so this is what we call a strengths-based approach. So it's not like we're just focusing on the deficits or the weaknesses, right? We look at what kids are really good at and try to highlight those and capitalize on those strengths, probably like y'all do in your work with kids, right? Mm -hmm. And then we find ways to support the things that are weaker. And all kids have both sets of characteristics. As do we as adults. Yes, exactly. That's human. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you mentioned intelligence just a minute ago, but I mean, there is no relationship between, you know, intelligence and ADHD, for example. Right. And, you know, I was just reading, I don't know if y'all have seen this, but there's an updated version of Overcoming Dyslexia. The second edition is out now. So, So I was reading that last night, you know, and she just reinforced again that kids can have dyslexia and be incredibly intelligent. So, you know, those are just very simple examples that, you know, when kids go through an evaluation like this, we have a whole section that's like, here's what your kid is really good at. And here's how you can play up those strengths and really use those strengths, you know, in school and in life. Yeah. I mean, parents want diagnostic clarity and often a diagnosis is seen as like a set of of weaknesses or challenges, but we try to highlight the things that are going well too, so that you can capitalize on those. Well, I think that's a good spot to just break away. Yeah. And, and Jeremy, thank you. Dr. Jeremy Sharp. Thank you so much (laughs) for coming on the podcast. We are going to continue our conversation on Patreon. We're going to talk about collaboration with assessors and then talk about why or why not parents follow through with recommendations that you guys give in the assessments as well, because that's something that I always think about. So if you're interested in hearing our extended conversation with Dr. Jeremy Sharp, join us on Patreon. The link to do that is www.patreon.com slash learn smarter podcast. And join us at the $5 a month monthly donation to hear this extended conversation and all our other extended conversations and other stuff that we only ever release through Patreon. So Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for coming on. And don't forget all the links to how to get in touch with Jeremy are in the show notes. Yes. Jeremy, why don't you go ahead and tell us quickly, how can our audience connect with you? The best way is probably finding me through the testing psychologist. So that is the testing psychologist.com. Don't forget the, the, and they can email me at Jeremy at the testing psychologist.com. We have included both of those in the show notes. So now on to Patreon. Have a great week, Smarties. Have a great week.